We welcome you back to our video Bible classes based on the first epistle of John. And we draw near to the end of this course of study, but this time, 1 John 5, 13 through 18. 1 John 5, 13 through 18. Once we finish 1 John, we will go ahead and add to this 2nd and 3rd John. That should take us a few more classes. And after we finish these epistles, I'll take us back to Matthew for a specialized study of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. This time, 1 John 5, 13 through 18. And here is our text. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. I'm at verse 18. I'm at verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Now, John, I want us to observe, uses this phrase several times. I write these things to you. He identifies objectives and purposes. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Seems to me one of the larger purposes of John writing to Christians is to provide assurance backed up by evidence, testimony, apostolic authentication. He wants his readers, by extension all Christians, to know if we really believe in the name of the Son of God with all that belief includes, we have eternal life. Life with God through Christ that begins now and continues through to the final resurrection and our permanent residence in heaven. We might call this confidence. In fact, look at the next verse. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Two brief things I want to say right up front, just briefly. The collective pronoun, we, in this context, refers to believers in Christ, the antecedent identified in verse 13. Also, I've mentioned this before, the word anything is always to be understood having the limitations assigned in context and in Scripture generally. Having said that, we have one main idea here. 
and it isn't new to John. The main idea is assurance, confidence. There isn't any doubt John is writing about the assurance enjoyed by Christians, by those who are active believers in Christ, faithful members in the family of God, having been born into that family. This confidence is enjoyed by those who live there in that family, in Christ, people who are responsive to all the imperatives given by John in this context. Let's review those just for a moment. Back in verse 2, loving God and keeping his commandments. In verse 4, overcoming the world by the activity of your faith in Christ. In verse 21, keep yourselves from idols. It is clear if we do not love God and keep his commandments, if we exert no effort to overcome the world by faith, if we do not shun idols, we cannot claim the assurance John is promising. So this confidence in verse 14 is not some singular promise that stands alone, ready to be claimed by just anyone who holds up their hands and says, praise the Lord. It is confidence that is a product of the kind of life John teaches we should be living. Remember his affirmation back in verse 12, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Consequently, doesn't have these promises. Without the Son of God, I have no real spiritual life, and hence I do not enjoy the confidence, the assurance John promises. To have the Son of God in my life, and thus this confidence I must join myself to him in baptism and continue to believe in the name of the Son of God with all that conduct that belief produces. All right. The confidence addressed in verse 14 pertains to a specific blessing. This is the confidence that we have in him, John says, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. We cannot just set up camp on the word anything because it has a context. A rather carnal approach to the text would be, wow, I can have anything I want. It says if we ask anything, so I'll take one of these and some of this and I'll take what I want over here. It says to believers, if we ask anything, so I'll take all my dreams and wishes and all my ambitions and desires day by day, and I'll just write a check and ask God to cash it right then. <clears throat> That's an inadequate, immature view of the verse that simply ignores the context and sets up human desire as the point of reference. Folks, in prayer, Human desire is not the central point of reference. God's sovereign will is the central controlling reference point. Here's the way to read this. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. This is what this says. 
So this is not a promise of unrestrained asking or unlimited giving of everything we want. This has to do with a very specific kind of asking. Asking anything that is according to his will. I believe this tells us something about how we ought to pray. And it also tells us something about God's response. Our prayers and petitions should be informed by the instruction God has given in his word. We know his responses will always be according to his superior will. His responses are always smarter, if I may say it that way, than our petitions. This might be a good place to bring up a verse we studied earlier back in verse 22. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. On our end, there must be knowledge and the activity of faith and obedience to God that informs everything we do about our asking, asking according to his will. On his end, we know he will do what is right, what is perfect, what is best. May not be according to our timetable. We cannot compel God into doing anything against his will. I must do those things that are pleasing in his sight and ask according to his will. If I do that, he hears us. He responds to his children, always doing what is right and best in that response. Are you with me? I said in a sermon not long ago, the same things I'm saying here. God's timing is superior to our timing. God's evaluation of our request and his manner of responding far above us. It is trust that sends us to him in prayer through Christ, and that trust awaits whatever his answer is. Verse 15, And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Now, once again, the emphasis is on confidence or assurance. In verse 14, this is the confidence that we have. In verse 15, twice it says, we know. It is not we guess, we gamble. No, it's we know. When God's people ask according to his will, they have this confidence. We know that he hears us. And we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. Prayer is not portrayed as taking a chance. It is not a matter of some psychological self-benefit without real communication to God, we are God's children talking to our Father through Jesus Christ. It is real communication with deity, and when we ask according to his will, he hears us. And John adds in this verse, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. I think it should be said, anytime we're talking about prayer, Prayer is never a matter of commanding God, coercing God, or having all of our wants satisfied within our envisioned or demanded schedule. Prayer is asking. Asking according to his will. God's answers are governed, uh, governed by his will. 
He hears his people, and his people have this confidence. But God's responses are determined and ruled by his superior will and wisdom. It can be said his answers are wiser than our request. In this passage, hearing and answering seems to be synonymous. Yet we know God is not bound by exactly what we ask for or the immediate time frame that we commonly desire. One man said, Burton Kaufman in his commentary series, when it may appear that our prayers have not been answered, we can be positively certain that the reason is harmonious with God's love for his children and that it is grounded in what God knows is best for us. Jesus said in Mark eleven twenty four, All things whatsoever ye pray and ask for, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. Let me read 14 and 15 together. 14 and 15 together. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him, a precious promise of God to his people. Verses 16 and 17 we'll take together. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. Now, Listen to that again. We're talking about these two important verses, 16 and 17. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. Let's discuss that. First, I find it helpful to keep in mind this is about what is visible, not what is invisible. It says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, a brother may be guilty of sin and the sin is not visible to us. We have no idea about it. We cannot detect it. We cannot see it. We have no knowledge of it. We cannot respond to it one way or the other. It's unknown to us, unseen. Only God has perfect ability to see and know all sin. So whatever this verse is about, it relates only to what is visible. If anyone sees, not just suspicion, not just circumstantial evidence or hearsay or gossip. No, if anyone sees. 
I do not believe we can respond to something we cannot see. Nor do I believe we are held accountable for what we cannot see. Now, look back at the passage. Two kinds of sins are identified in the verse. Sin that does not lead to death. And sin leading to death. First, consider sin that does not lead to death. Sin that does not lead to death is sin we repent of. How do we know that? John has already written back in chapter 1, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So sin that does not lead to death is sin we confess, sin we forsake, we stop it, and we ask God to forgive it. When we see a brother commit a sin not unto death, that is, the guilty one repents, our response should be to ask God to give that brother life. Are you with me? We see a brother commit a sin, not unto death. The guilty brother repents. We can and should pray for that brother, and God will give life to that penitent brother. Simply put, stand with the penitent brother. He sins, it is visible, but he repents. Stand with that penitent brother. Sin unto death would obviously be sin. We see that the guilty brother continues in. He does not repent. John says, I do not say that you should pray about that. Why? Because God will not give life to one who continues in sin. Verse 16 functions to illustrate asking according to his will. If you ask God to overlook sin a brother continues in, you're not asking according to his will. If you ask God to give life to one who sins unto death, you're not asking according to his will. We should never ask God to do something we know is against his will. Now, there is a curious parallel something very much like this back in the Old Testament in the book of Jeremiah. I'm going to read these passages from Jeremiah. You'll immediately hear the connection. Jeremiah 7, 16. As for you, do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or prayer for them and do not intercede with me for I will not hear you. Jeremiah 11, 13, and 14. For your gods have become as many as your cities, O Judah, and as many as the streets of Jerusalem are the altars you have set up to shame, altars to make offerings to Baal. Therefore, do not pray for this people, or lift up a cry or prayer on their behalf, for I will not listen when they call to me in the time of their trouble. Thus says the Lord concerning this people, they have loved to wander thus. They have not restrained their feet, 
Therefore, the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. Verse 11, the Lord said to me, do not pray for the welfare of this people. That's Jeremiah 14, verses 10 and 11. We should never ask God to compromise. We should never ask God to do something we know is against his will. The follow-up, therefore, is in verse 17. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. I consider verse 17 as a clarification. John wants to be clear about this. All unrighteousness is sin. Every form or kind of unrighteousness is sin. John isn't saying there is some unrighteousness that is not sin. It is sin. But it is sin that does not lead to death if the sinner repents and is forgiven. Sin is sin, but does not lead to death when it is dealt with honestly, repented of, and the sinner forgiven in Christ. And here's what each of us should know. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Takeaways. John said in the beginning of this passage, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. It is important to John, and certainly beyond that important to God, for Christians to have confidence. The idea, maybe this will all turn out okay, that doesn't hit the mark. Believers in the name of the Son of God who are walking in the light and appealing to God through their advocate need to read this over and over and rest on this confidence. Nobody wants to commit their souls to something that just might be true and could turn out good. The New Testament writers offer confidence and each one of us need to embrace it. Asking according to God's will means I need to be informed by his word. This subject of prayer cannot be just something we make up or engage in based on primarily our own will. We need to read and study the Bible to know who we're praying to, what constitutes acceptable prayer, how to pray, with what demeanor and attitude. Asking according to God's will means I must be informed by his word and then trust him and wait for him. Never ask God to let a persistent sinner off without repentance. I believe that's the essence of what John is saying in verses 16 and 17. John is giving us an example of asking that is not according to God's will. I cannot, on some emotional ground or diplomatic basis, just ask God to overlook an impenitent sinner. 
I can ask God that the word will bring a sinner to repentance, but I cannot ask God to let a persistent sinner off without repentance. So that's our study of 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 through 18. In the next class, I'll start with verse 18, have more to say about that, and take us on to verse 21. Thank you for watching this video.